Hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 23. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of God for the world. Thanks Thanks be to God. Did you follow all that? I mean, let's just admit it, your eyes were glazing over, right? Linda did a great job reading, but this is, this is Paul we're talking about. No disrespect to the Bible, no disrespect to Paul, but let's just admit it. He could have used a good editor when he was writing these words. By the way, the choir's so sweet, they've laughed at that joke all three times throughout the morning. Thank you. Apparently, Paul never learned the definition of a run-on sentence. Ephesians chapter 1 has the odd distinction of containing the longest sentences that Paul ever wrote in all of his letters. The passage that Linda read was about 12 or 13 verses long, but it was just a handful of sentences. Each sentence was about 50 words long. He really could have used a good editor because there are commas where there should have been periods, there are semicolons where there should have been entirely new paragraphs, and by the time you finish reading a passage like the one you just heard, your eyes are glazing over. Kind of like the way your eyes are glazing while I'm preaching, so come on back here. He really could have used some red ink from a good editor. Maybe there are times in Paul's letters when the words are not meant to be read, as much as they are meant to be experienced. And what I mean by that is, what if this kind of passage, what if Ephesians chapter 1, with all of its long, complicated sentences, 
was not meant just to reveal his thoughts, but to reveal his passion and his energy and enthusiasm. What if, what if sentences like these don't just reveal his head, but they reveal his heart? Think about it. When was the last time that something so amazing happened to you, that you were filled with so much excitement that you couldn't wait to tell somebody about it because the words just kept flowing out of your mouth and the emotions just kept bubbling up in your spirit and you didn't care about sentence structure or syntax or proper grammar. You didn't even care about taking a breath because the thing you experienced was so vivid and powerful that you just couldn't wait to tell someone about it. And everything that I just said was one sentence, by the way. (laughs) About 80 words long. Maybe that's what's happening to Paul here. Because maybe in Ephesians chapter 1, we get a glimpse of a Paul who just couldn't wait to get out whatever it was that he had just experienced. Something so exciting, something so transformative, something so life-changing that he didn't care about proper sentence structure. He just needed to say it. Maybe his mind was racing faster than his pen. Maybe his thoughts were racing faster than the words could catch up. Paul was captured with something so exciting that he had to tell the Christians in Ephesus about it, which would lead us to the question, what exactly happened to you, Paul? What is it exactly that you are so excited to tell us? I think we could figure that out if we do a deep dive into these long, complicated sentences. And it's here that I think a little bit of grammar might help. This past week, preparing for the sermon, I took the liberties of tapping into my old eighth-grade grammar class, remembering my teacher, Mrs. Betty Durant, God rest her soul, who taught me and my classmates how to diagram sentences. So I took a stab at the very first sentence that Paul wrote in this passage, and after I diagrammed it, it looked something like this, a total train wreck. (laughs) Just a mismatch of phrases and clauses and dangling this and hanging that. And then the next sentence in verses 13 and 14, you've looked even worse. Now, if you look past all of that elaborate spaghetti soup of words, if you look just at the main subjects and the main verbs and the two main clauses that are part of each one of these complicated sentences, if you took away all those other phrases and all those other clauses, you get right to the heart of what made Paul so excited. Verse 11, here's the first example. I'll boil it right down to you in each of these two parts. Part 1, verse 11, in Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, that's part 1, so that we might live for the praise of His glory, that's part 2. Look at verse 13, same idea, different sentence, when you heard the word of truth, that's part 1, this is the pledge to the praise of His glory, that's part 2. Another example, verse 17, I pray that God may give you wisdom, part one, so that you may know the greatness of his power, part two. Over and over again, there's this repeating pattern of the same idea in each of these long, complicated sentences. It is this one simple phrase. If you boil it all down, we find this unmistakable repeating pattern of this one central idea, and it is this. 
we have gotten a gift from God, part one. Now we get to glorify God, part two. We have received a gift from God, so now we get to glorify God. Paul was telling the Ephesians and is telling us that if you are looking for the meaning of life, if you are looking for your primary purpose on earth, if you are looking for your destiny, that for which you were created and put on this earth, it is this. You were created to glorify God. Nothing else matters. Your primary purpose, your gift that you've given from, been given from God is to glorify God. Now, we can admit right up front that when we hear that, we think that's pretty weird. That kind of language about us glorifying God seems like weird language, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. When you open your eyes and when you wake up in the morning, your thoughts drift into all the stuff you have to do in the day and what your schedule says and everything that you have to accomplish and your long, complicated checklist. That's what you think of when you first wake up. And when you think about your future and all the years that lie ahead of you, you think about all the things that you want to become and all the things you want to do and what you want to experience and what you want to achieve, your job, your family, your livelihood, your finances, your security. Very rarely, I mean, let's just tell the truth, very rarely do we ever wake up in the morning and the very first thought in our minds is, I wonder how I'm going to glorify God today. I mean, should I ask for a show of hands of how many of you woke up this morning and the very first thought was, I wonder how I'm going to glorify God today? No, your first thought was, thank God I got an extra hour of sleep. That's the first thing you thought of today. My hunch is that when you look at your future, very rarely do we look at our future and say to ourselves, I wonder how I'm going to spend the rest of my years on this earth glorifying God. I wonder when the last time was that you looked in the mirror, and instead of focusing on your flaws and all the things that were wrong and all the things that you need to improve about your appearance and your life, I, I bet it's been a long time since you've looked in the mirror and thought to yourself, I have been given a gift by God, and this person that I see in the mirror gets to glorify God today. That's weird, isn't it? That's a weird idea. This is weird language. I mean, after all, we are rational people, right? I mean, we're rational people, right? We are high-achieving, socially acceptable people. We are not religious fanatics. We're not reclusive hermits. We're not monks in a monastery. Those are the, those are the kinds of people who would use language like, I wonder how I'm going to glorify God today, but not us but I think that's Paul's point. Because in that one moment, something happened to him that made it crystal clear in his own life that everything that had led him up to that moment, everything that he experienced up until that didn't matter because from now on, he got crystal clear clarity about his reason for being. And it was this, that I am created to glorify God. And in that moment, everything made sense to Paul. Everything lined up in his life 
all of his DNA, all of his corpuscles and fibers and muscles in his being all of a sudden became intrinsically aligned according to the heart of God. And he realized that he was there to glorify God, and he realized what a gift it was to do it. Maybe in that moment he thought about everything that he had experienced beforehand, about his entire life before he met Jesus, about how he was one of those typical career-minded professionals how he was a tent maker by trade and a, and a lawyer by training. And maybe he remembered that he used to spend his entire life thinking about his career and the future that lied ahead of him. Or maybe in that moment it was even worse for him. Maybe he started thinking about his horrible life before he met Jesus and all of the terrible things that he had done, how he had arrested and persecuted people who were following Jesus and watch them as they were killed simply for being Christians. Maybe he was fixated on that. Maybe he was fixated on his career. Maybe he shuddered with guilt about everything that he had done beforehand. But it didn't matter because in that one moment, before he picked up that pen and wrote to the Ephesians, in that moment he realized that there was only one reason for his being. He was created to glorify God. And that became his middle C. It became his tuning fork. It became his true north. It became his compass for life. And everything else in his life fit into that conviction. And when he realized that, when everything else got aligned, he got so excited. His emotions bubbled up within his spirit, and he couldn't wait to tell the Ephesians what the key to life was. And that's why he kept on going, one run-on sentence after another. And you know what? That same conviction can change your life too, just like it changed Paul's. What would it be like for you to be seized with that same clarity about your purpose to glorify God in everything that you do? What would it be like to use that conviction as the filter through which you do everything that you do every day, from the profound to the mundane, what would it be like if in the morning when you log into your computer for the first time and you, you see an overstuffed email inbox, if you were to say to yourself, I wonder how I'm going to glorify God today? Or as you're reviewing contracts or or negotiating settlements, or double-checking accounts, or doing performance reviews, if you were to say before any of that, I wonder how I'm going to glorify God today. Or as you glance at that coworker who showed up in the office looking really burdened about something, or as you look at your neighbor and see in her eyes that they've been bloodshot with tears, what would it be like if you say to yourself, I wonder how I'm going to glorify God today? Or as you're sitting at the desk in your home office thinking about all that you have to do and your children come up to you to ask if you could read them a story, or if you stare at your spouse and realize it's been a long time since you told them that you love them, what would it be like if you say to yourself, I wonder how I can glorify God today? As you realize that you stare more at your phone than you do at your Bible, as you realize you care more about what you earn than what you give to God, 
as you realize that there is so much more to this life that God has created you to be and created you to do, what would it be like if your guiding principle, if your north star in everything you do were this, I am created to glorify God? As my pastor friend Scott Smith likes to say to his congregation, Jesus loves you, now get busy. I'll let him know that that line from him got the biggest laugh of my whole sermon. That will be really bad for his ego. Because when you believe that, when you adopt that as your central conviction and your orienting principle, everything in your life begins to fit, especially the parts that don't seem to fit right now. All of the tortured parts, the misaligned parts, the broken parts, the sad parts. When you realize that your primary purpose is to glorify God, everything comes together like puzzle pieces that have clicked and, and gears whose teeth have finally engaged, music that has settled in perfect harmony. Everything comes together when you adopt that as your life principle. What will I do to glorify God in everything I do? And if that happens to you, if you begin to live that way and orient your whole being that way, then, then the Bible has a word to describe you. The Bible has a word to describe people who feel like they have been set apart from the ways of the world to primarily glorify God, to live a life that is so aligned with God's heart. It's one of Paul's favorite words to use to describe people, and that word is saint. That's what you're called to be. It's the favorite way that Paul used to describe followers of Jesus, not just the people who've died, not just those who've been venerated, not just those who are considered heroes of the faith, ordinary people, people who were alive, people who were here on earth. Paul called them saints when he got the sense that they were starting to live with their primary conviction that they were there to glorify God. A saint is not perfect. A saint is not someone who has it all together. A saint is not someone who's been elevated to hero status. A saint is simply someone who tries their best in every moment to glorify God in all that they do. That's the definition of saint. In fact, let me say it as clearly and as succinctly as I can. A saint is someone who chooses to glorify God in everything they do. And you know what? That's what you're called to be, a saint. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you don't slip up. Doesn't mean that you don't fall backwards every now and then. It just means that you recognize that your primary purpose here is to glorify God in everything you do. It's an appropriate reminder for today because today, with Christians all around the world, we celebrate All Saints Sunday, when we're going to remember all of those in our community who have died in the past year. When we remember these names, we will celebrate them, we will mourn, we will grieve, we will remember with fondness who they were and who they are. But we're going to do it this year around the communion table as part of our communion liturgy because we'll remember that when we come up for communion, we are surrounded by those saints, not just those who have died, but especially those of us who are living. 
as we come together by the grace of God to say with one voice and in one accord, we choose to glorify God in everything we do. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God because it is right to give God our thanks and our praise. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the witness of Paul and for his central convictions that remind us of our primary purpose here on earth. We will admit to you how broken we feel. We will even admit to you that we have had bad days mixed with the good. But in this moment, we come to clarity about who you've called us to be. Help us in everything we do to glorify you as we give thanks to the saints who've gone before us and exemplify for us the way we can live. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, and let all God's people say, Amen. And so in response to God's Word, we invite Vicki to return as she gives us some practical ways that we can grow in our commitment to Jesus. Hello, saints. Our response to God involves the commitment of our whole lives, which we call grip. Did you notice in the bulletin right now is when we're going to strengthen our grip. Have you heard it enough? Are you remembering what that stands for? Before they, oh, they already put it up. Okay, next week, next week there's a quiz. Because, oh, there it is. We're going to uh, continue to, to show our lives are going to give glory to God by giving, by reading scripture, by inviting others, and by prayer. So we have a few practical ways for you to do that this week. And I would say we welcome your suggestions of practical ways that you are living out your faith and you are strengthening your grip. If you have a practice that is working really well and you're like Paul and you're so excited you have a really long run-in sentence that McGray cannot possibly diagram, tell us. We want to share the good news among one another. So please, share your practices with us as well. So in just two weeks, we'll have the joyful opportunity to give glory to God through our financial generosity when we'll give you an estimate of giving card. We'll be able to prayerfully fill those out during the service. So if you're one of those people who likes to think about it, I'm telling you now, you get to start thinking about it. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to do it together. It's a corporate response to all that God has done for us. And uh, so we'll be doing that on Sunday, November 17th. We'll celebrate God's glory and the way that we continue to glorify Him and the way that this church will be able to reach out and make God's love real in the world based upon your estimates. It'll be a great worship service, and I hope you'll be here. To strengthen your reading of Scripture without fear or frustration, and I love that. Are you who wrote that? Without fear or frustration. Isn't that great? Because honestly, maybe you read that one line from the upper room, or you read something and you're like, I have no idea. We're going we're gonna to kill all those beasts next year. No more fear, no more frustration right here. Hyde Park United Methodist Church, Bible, love, McGray. It's going to be a great year. And I hope you're going to be a part of it. Because we're going to have all these great resources. We're going to podcast. We're going to have groups. We're going to be studying. Like, I really am, I actually kind of get like Paul excited about next year. 
So one of the ways that we believe that you'll grow in your faith is by being a part of a small group. So on the back of the page you could have written notes on, there's a page that says the Bible Project 2020 Groups. These are the current small groups. I can promise you we will add as many as we need if there are other times that you want. I think she's already got like 50 people that want to be leaders. There's a lot of enthusiasm for this. So there's people out in the courtyard today that can answer your questions. They also have these big boards that if you know now that you're willing to commit to reading the Bible every day next year or being a part of this project that goes through the Bible, they're inviting us to sign those posters. So you can be thinking about it. if you're willing to make that commitment and write your name out there. My name is on the W for a walker, but um, I think they think that W stood for something else. But anyway, and uh, finally, we want to share with you all, oh, I'm so excited about this one, a story about how our children experienced the corporate practice of serving. So throughout all October, the children were collecting items for hygiene kits to go to people who've been affected by disasters. So these kits had... They were little Ziploc bags. Can we say a corporate sponsor? Sorry, they weren't. Oh, look, there's a bag now. So you can see it has toothpaste. It has, oh, wait, can they see? Yes, they can see that. Comb, toothbrush, blah, 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 blah. All this stuff that people need when they've had a disaster. And so the kits originally were going to go to people uh, impacted by Hurricane Dorian. And then last Sunday morning, during the mission celebration, I got a text from Pam Garrison, conference disaster coordinator in the conference office, saying, we're putting out a plea. We need these hygiene bags because a tornado came through Lakeland. 180 homes were destroyed. 50 more homes were damaged. The school, the roof was off the school. You may have seen that in the news. And she said, we need hygiene kits now. She put the call out to the whole conference. We were the only church that had any to meet that need right then because of our children's faithfulness in serving. I get chills telling that story. Yay, children! So I'm just so proud of them. There were 75 children that met last Sunday and put the kids together. They made 120 kids. They raised $950 for the effort. So we give thanks for the way that you're, the saints are continuing, McGray. They're not just behind us, they're ahead of us. And so we're grateful for that. So now the poor ushers have been back there saying, Vicki, are you ever going to end? <laughs> yes, I'm going to end. We are going to call the ushers forward to receive this morning's offering. Let us offer ourselves in gratitude to God and in remembrance of the saints as we prepare for Holy Communion. We invite the ushers forward. <laughs> 